It'll help me and help you to keep Proverbs 1 open, so let me encourage you to do that. For many of us, life is just busy. Isn't it? We've got to-do lists and to-do lists of to-do lists and deadlines and pressures and things competing in our time and our attention and our headspace. This unrelenting pace of busyness. Partly that's, that's our culture today. That's life. Partly I think that's living in this city. Oxford is a busy place. But it means that for that kind of busy living, it means we gather information in a different way. The methods by which we make decisions in life are are different from what they used to be because of the unrelenting pace of life. So, of course, for that kind of living, the internet is brilliant. It's a huge business. It's partly the answer to what we need. We can just search out information on Wikipedia like that. But some might argue it's not just the answer, it's the cause of part of the problem. There was an article a while ago, um, it's quite famous now, by a guy called Nicholas Carr, and its title is, Is Google Making Us Stupid? Let me read a bit to you. He says this, he says, Over the past few years I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neural circuitry, reprogramming the memory, My mind isn't going as far as I can tell, but it's changing. I'm not thinking the way I used to think. I can feel it most strongly when I'm reading. It says, immersing myself in a book or lengthy article used to be easy. My mind would get caught up in the narrative or the turns of the argument and I'd spend hours strolling through long stretches of prose. But that's rarely the case anymore. Now my concentration starts to drift after two or three pages. I get fidgety, I lose the thread, I begin to look for something else to do. I feel as if I'm always dragging my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. And in our chaotic lives of this constant stop-start, stop-start bombardment of short attention span information with endless streams of Twitter-style news and endless feeds of factoids, we are, as best we can, trying to piece together a life worth living. And yet you see, as as Nicholas Carr points out, the, the means by which we receive this news becomes, in part, the news itself. The medium is part of the message. Now, people say we should have been ready for that. A media theorist in the 60s said that media are not just passive channels of information. They supply the stuff of thought, but they also shape the process of thought. And so what the net seems to be doing is chipping away our capacity for concentration and contemplation. Our minds now expect to take in information the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. One person has said, once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. I wonder, does that kind of resonate with you, with your life? Think of the way even on a long article or a blog post that I'm tempted to cut to the chase and zip to the end if it's too long rather than 
processing and pondering and thinking, well, isn't it just a bit wordy? Maybe Karl Barth was a bit too wordy, but who knows? Why can't things be a bit more concise, a bit less like hard graft? Maybe if you're a Christian, you struggle to meditate and chew over the Bible. Or as you read a Christian book or listen to a sermon, after ten minutes your mind is wandering somewhere else. Our capacity for concentration and contemplation seems to have drifted. And so that's the backdrop when we begin thinking about wisdom. This little series over the summer, thinking about what it means to be truly wise. What wise living looks like. Did you want to be wise? Wise in the way that we work, or in our friendships, or how we use our leisure time, or in our marriages, or as parents or as we plan for the future, or as we set up home, or as we watch TV, or read books, or go on the internet, or heading on holiday. What does wise living look like? And so I take it, if you're a Christian, and if you're anything like me, we need to learn to scuba dive again. To learn afresh what it means to, to dig down into God's words his wisdom, his truth, and so to learn what it means to live well. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, welcome to you. Maybe you're just looking in on Christian things, friends have invited you, you're not quite sure where you stand, you're not quite sure what you believe. I'd urge you to listen in and to come back. Because the claim of the book of Proverbs, as we'll see today, is frankly very arrogant if it's wrong. Because in a world of competing ideologies and competing wisdoms, this book says it has the key to true wisdom. And it's found nowhere else. And whilst our information age is good, whilst knowledge and learning and development is good, without God... It's not that good. So says Proverbs, learn to really live in the world. And so you need wisdom. And we say, well, how do we get wisdom? Where does that come from? Have a look at verses 1 to 7 with me. I'll give you a heads up now, we're going to be longest in 1 to 7 quite significantly, so don't get too worried. Um, And you think he's just finished his first point. Unashamedly, the author is Solomon, the son of King David. He was in the line of great King David, and so ultimately he was in the line of the wisest king who ever lived, the Lord Jesus. God's wisdom taking on flesh and coming to live. And Solomon wrote this book, although later we'll see, as you go through Proverbs, there are other authors. But it seems Solomon wrote this first chunk, chapters 1 to 9, which is, if you like, a big kind of macro introduction. That's where we're going to be over the summer. We're in the micro introduction now in verses 1 to 7, but 1 to 9 seems to be a big introduction saying, pursue wisdom. You need wisdom. He wants to persuade us. He says, love it, treasure it, value it, prioritise it. 
Wisdom is so important. And if you know anything about Solomon, you will know probably that he was a wise man. Have a listen to how he's described in uh, 1 Kings 4. It's 1 Kings 4, verse 29 to 34, if you're a note-taker. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the peoples of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezrahite, wiser than Hermon, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. He's a wise man. He's got wisdom that comes from God. And it's a wisdom that surpasses all the other wisdom of the day. He's this international expert. People would come from far and wide to hear what he had to say. And as the king of God's people, he would have to know the word of God. He would rule from the word of God. He would sit under the word of God and rule in line with God's truth. Do you notice Solomon's wisdom isn't some kind of ethereal, ungrounded wisdom? He's not a, a religious guru in one sense. People don't make pilgrimages to come and sit at his feet and hear what he has to say about life. Now, his wisdom seems to be earthy and real every day. He, he was a botanist. He knew about the cedar of Lebanon, the hyssop that grows out of walls. He was a zoologist. International standard on animals and birds and reptiles and fish. And he even seemed to write music. He was a scientist, but he was creative. It seems he was a a renowned academic. He might well have fitted in rather well as a senior professor down the road at Oxford University. People badgering him for interviews, wanting to know what he had to say on this issue, wanting to know his take on things. Yet this is vital. Solomon was wise because he not only knew it all, but he knew the one who made it all. That is biblical wisdom. It is how to live well in God's world. And we'll see it in weeks to come, but it will encompass things like skill and expertise and competence in all situations, in the nitty-gritty, everyday, messy lives that we live. But we can live like that because we know how the world works, because we know the one who made it. The knowledge of God is foundational. That's what Solomon had. The motto of Oxford University It's from the start of Psalm 27, the Lord is my light. So it's a motto that sadly many are embarrassed by now as people turn their backs on the one who made it. And yet when God is removed from the picture, people might be very brainy, but not very wise. And so I take it very deliberately, we begin Proverbs by placing it in the flow of salvation history, in the flow of God's big plan for his world. These pages contain a wisdom that comes from God, 
But how do we get it? Have a look at verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see, the journey to become truly wise must begin with humility. It begins with fearing God. It's it's an idea that comes up again and again in these first nine chapters, as it does throughout the Bible. And by the fear of the Lord, we're not so much thinking about a paralysed, trembling and shaking and quaking, but it's an awe that recognises who God is, what he is like, what his role in it is, that recognises who we are and what we're like and what our role is. And there's something of an irony in verse 7 because the story goes that these Proverbs would originally have been used as manuals and tools for teaching um, future royalty, grooming the sons of Solomon, getting them ready for public office. And yet, what is the way to true greatness? It's humility. It's the fear of the Lord. The way up is the way down. For promotion, we need demotion. Which is great for us to latch on to as Christians. It's because we are sons and daughters of the true king. And the way to be wise, the way to live for him is to be humble. Back in the early 20th century, C.S. Lewis wrote a more contemporary version of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. A kind of allegory of the Christian life. But in C.S. Lewis's version, it was with the struggles of living in the early 20th century world. So battles with modern phoniness or hypocrisy or communism or fascism or the intellectual vacancy of the Christian church. And yet he was brutal. He was crystal clear on what we need to be wise. He says this. He says, we call it now wisdom's valley. But the oldest maps mark it the valley of humiliation. We cannot miss that. If we want to be wise, and initially we're humble, we fear God. And he makes us wise through these parables, these proverbs, which means something like a model of something else or something that represents something else. So think at the moment, if you will, with me, of the Oxford United football team. I know some of you will be thinking of that. Probably not many of us. But there they are, sweltering away out at the Kassam or wherever they're uh, jet-setting and training abroad, getting ready for the season ahead. And they get ready in terms of fitness. They do the hard graft. But they get ready as well in terms of plans and tactics and scenarios. You might think they just make it up as they go onto the pitch. They don't. That they plan to win. They train first. Well, so in a sense, these proverbs are a chance for us to train before we live. To chew over life situations and scenarios before we get to them. Before we live well. And the outworking of this wisdom? Well, let me read verse 2 to 5. The outworking is for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behaviour, doing what is right and just and fair, 
for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance. So lots of things, but it seems to me in broad brushstrokes there are two things particularly in these verses. And the first is it's shaping our character. Our wisdom is tangibly seen in what we're like. We've got to look at our diaries and look at our lives and see whether we're wise or not. So verse 2, gaining or knowing wisdom and instruction. Or instruction, it could be discipline in the older NIV. Which is why we need humility. It's why we're not wise, because we don't like instruction and discipline. We pull back from it. It, It's good though, it shapes us. Changes us. So the life of wisdom is seen in a character that's been shaped by the Lord. Verse 3, living rightly and justly and fairly. Or verse 4, a life of prudence, which means cautious and shrewd living. Being careful. Maybe it's planning and looking ahead to the long term. Maybe it's not being overly impulsive or just running headlong with our emotions the whole time into situations. Maybe it's being sufficiently mindful that we ignore or we question at least advertising and marketing. Maybe it's questioning our feelings and our desires and our hearts before we act. Prudence. There's four, knowledge. Knowledge there seems to be the knowing how the world works, how the things are put together, how we live best in this world. Maybe understanding money or sex or relationships or power and, and both how they work, but knowing ourselves as well. How they affect us. Knowing our weaknesses. Discretion. Verse 4. It's careful living in a world of temptations, maybe uh, avoiding those situations, those scenarios that we know just aren't helpful for us. Maybe people or places or times where we slip. Often we just can't help ourselves, can we? we? We know we need to concentrate on work and get this thing done and the deadlines are there, but we just keep checking Facebook. We know we struggle with how we think of others. But we can't help ourselves from just eavesdropping that gossiping conversation which poisons afresh how we think about that person. We know we need to be pure, but the TV channel controller was just there and we just had to click. Wise living. Discretion. This book is to shape our character. It's seen in how we act, how we live, how we make decisions as we're chiselled and we're fashioned by God's instruction and his discipline, transforming us. And as well as shaping character, it's to shape our thinking too. So some of those words make that very clear. Knowledge, understanding, discretion, instruction, guidance, insight, those are their thinking words. What goes on in our minds... I think it described as rather like the, the, the distinction between Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Sherlock Holmes goes into a room and is was nicely portrayed in that recent series. He can just take it all in and by deduction and by processing he, he concludes what's really going on. And Watson is kind of being taught to do so. He's catching up. He, he's learning insights. 
He's learning how to think. While so as we drink deeply at the well of God's wisdom, we can have that kind of insight. We can think well. That friend who comes over to you and struggling to live for Christ, and so it's the insight that we can have of just what's really going on, actually. It's not just what's being said, but what they're not saying and what's kind of going on behind the scenes what their heart is like. Maybe it's a friend who's not a Christian and there's this constant bombardment of questions. Again, the insight to see what the real question is. And as we said, there's a lack of wise people. I think because of verse 4, it's because we're simple. We don't want the God who made the universe to tell us how to live. Our knee-jerk reaction is to pull against him. He says, do you want to be truly wise? And we say, no. No, I'll do it myself. I'll go on alone, thank you. Because it means we have to acknowledge that I am not the measure of all things and he is the measure of all things. And it means death to our egos and death to our self-assured opinions. It means... Fearing him. Kenneth Graham, Wind in the Willows. He writes an account as as Mole and Rat are looking for the baby otter. Suddenly the Mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water and bowed his head and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror, Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh, mole, I am afraid. And the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. A fear of God that leads us to worship and to listen. To to trust him that he knows best and that he wants what's best for us. And to drink deep and to be wise. So wisdom from God is, is seen in our characters that are shaped. In our thinking that's changed. It begins with fear of him, a right fear. And it means that we live well in the world. But of course the Bible does not describe how life ought to be. It describes how life is. It acknowledges the difficulty of living in a world that has walked out on God, that doesn't value him, that doesn't love him. A world that loves folly. And so much more briefly, two dead ends that we must not be tempted by as we think about wisdom. Two dangers. And the first one is in verse 8 to 19, which is listening to the wrong voices. So have a look down. In verses 8 to 19, we hear two voices. There's the voice of the father and mother and the voice of the fool. And he urges us not to, be li- not to listen to and be influenced by the wrong voices. So, 
heeding the voice of the father and mother in verse 8 to 9, look and make us beautiful and impressive. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Think, think Olympic medal. Think victor's wreath. Listening to the right voice can make us attractive. Amy Blanche. Children here. Listen to God's wisdom. Listen well to God's wisdom. Parents, teach them God's wisdom. You have a responsibility. Listening to the right voice can make us attractive. Wouldn't that be amazing as a church community if we were known for being wise? People look at Morden Road and they say, well, they love and they care for each other and they welcome us quite well and I think you're good at that. But wouldn't it be great to be a wise church? That folk would come in and leave and say, there's this preciousness and a beauty in the way that they live. They live these attractive lives. They make wise decisions. Their, their characters have been shaped by God's wisdom. That their thinking is, is insightful. But how easily we listen to the fools around us. Rather than our father and mother who teach us God's wisdom, we listen to those who seek to entice us. I find it striking that rather than humbly sitting under the wisdom from God, the alternative in pride is to take power from others. Let's have a look at the language. Verse 10. They seek to entice you. Verse 11. It's innocent blood and ambushing. Why? Well, verse 12 to 14, there's valuables and plunder and loot. They, They want power over people. And yet, verse 15, My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths. For their feet rush into evil and they are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. It seems a given that people will come and want to persuade you and persuade you to take advantage of others. The writer knows our hearts. Knows how easily we're drawn to power and influence, such that we'll even try and get it in a bad way. And so it's at the huge scale of nations who seek to dominate and overpower others. It's, I guess, relevant to these guys who would be royalty. It's bullying at school. It's bullying and gossip in the workplace. It's how we cleverly use words and verbally or mentally assault people to justify our own behaviour. Or even it's factions and groups in churches as people do politics and seek to gather folk around them and then influence other people. People wanting to have this abusive power over others and encouraging others to do the same. And they won't ever give you the life that they promise. They promise a share of the purse. They promise a community. But it will just bring you death. They lie in wait for their own blood. So be careful who you listen to. It's easy to listen to fools. How helpful are the voices in your life? How much do you listen? Friends, family, colleagues, 
parents, politicians, the culture in which we live, the media around us. You see, danger number one is that whatever our age, we will easily listen to and be influenced by the wrong voices. Fools. The second is to hear the voice of wisdom, but to not actually hear it. We hear, but we do not do. And so we don't really hear. One of the dangers in churches like ours, churches, I'd say, that that love the Bible. We love the Bible because we love God and we believe it tells us what he says. One of the big dangers is that we hear it, but don't really hear it. So maybe we take notes and they look very neat and they're lovely and we file them away and we do nothing about them. Sorry for taking notes. That's fine to take notes. Maybe we we read our Bibles each day and we go to home group and we study there and we head to church twice on a Sunday and we download podcasts and we read Christian books and yet we do nothing about it. It doesn't affect how we live. James, in his letter, would say we're we're deceiving ourselves. We've not really heard. Well, so in these verses, the picture changes and we have wisdom as a woman, verse 20. Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out at the city gate. She makes her speech. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? It's interesting, true wisdom is there to be heard. But people don't want to listen. Put their hands over their ears and seek to ignore what she's saying. And so verse 26, I in turn will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you, then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but I will not, they will not find me, since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. They can hear, but simple people love simple ways. And mockers love mocking. And fools hate knowledge. They, they hear, but they just ignore it. And so they don't hear. The right voice is there, but they don't listen. And so we must grasp this from the beginning. Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, is more than just a book for people who, who want to upgrade their lives from a C to an A+. It's not just fortune cookie wisdom but it's how to live now and so how to live forever. I take it the calamity that Solomon speaks of in verse 26 onwards, it ultimately points to a day when Jesus will come back and he will judge his world. There's this urgency in the first nine chapters seeking to persuade us to value this true wisdom. And yet the problem is, again, wisdom comes and pleads with us And our proud hearts say no. If you're a regular here, you'll know my youngest, Abby, is almost two. 
And she's very cute, but she is very strong-willed. And if she's in one of those moods, well, so whatever you ask her, the answer is no. So imagine it's dinner time, and it's one of those moods. And yet we say to her, Abby, do you want ice cream and chocolate sauce for pudding? And she says, no. And then we try again, and she says, yes. And God says to us, be wise. And we say, no. We're those in verse 22. We're the mockers and the fools. Mockers are hardened, aggressive, confident, calculating. Fools are just stubborn and stupid. But neither listen. And yet the end game of ignoring God, if we keep covering our ears when Lady Wisdom calls, well, he won't just laugh at us, but he will give us what we want You want a life without God? Okay. You can have it. A life that is separated from him and his goodness forever. A life that the Bible elsewhere will describe as hell. And of course, God's ultimate plan of wisdom that we've sung about already and we've heard about already. The wisdom of the cross to rescue us from that doesn't look wise in the eyes of the world. As we, as we eat bread and as we drink wine in a bit, that doesn't look sensible. Paul writes this, he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. And with our our worldly wise hats on, the message of the cross, of God taking on flesh as a man and as to his flesh dying in weakness for the sin of his people, it sounds foolish. Listen to Richard Dawkins. Read his Twitter stream. He mocks us relentlessly because it sounds so foolish. But be assured of this, at the end of the day, there are only two kinds of people. As one writer said, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. God will just allow us to have what we want in the end, a life without him. And so this summer sermon series is not just theory. It's how to have true wisdom. Life now and life forever. Verse 32, For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. Peace for now, but peace for them. So the second danger is that we will hear it, but we won't listen. We'll remain as fools and we'll be lost forever. Imagine with me, a fire alarm goes off now. 
What's the evidence that you've heard it? Well, the evidence is we leave the building. We get out of here as quickly as possible. It's not that we write it down. It's not that we make a mental note of the fire alarm going off or that we critique the pitch of the fire alarm or the frequency of the alarm or the volume of the alarm. No, the fact that we've heard it means we act. And so we leave. You see, God says to us, here is my wisdom. Here is how to live well. Here is the cross. Now, if you've heard, act upon it. Let's pray.